Hi, I'm David Bush and welcome to Bush History. You are listening to a podcast reviewing American history from the years 1800 to 1850. This podcast was originally part of a YouTube video set dealing with American history from 1750 all the way to the present day. I've broken it down into segments for the purpose of making this podcast. If you'd like to see the actual YouTube video, simply search for Bush History on YouTube, that's B-U-S-C-H-I-S-T-O-R-Y, on YouTube, or visit my website, www.bushhistory.net. So I hope you enjoy this and hope you find it informative. Hi there. Once again, uh, my name is David Bush. I teach AP American History, and this is a second of our series, of my series of reviews using a timeline format. The uh, first series took us through the revolution to the beginning of the Agrarian Republican Thomas Jefferson. The second of this series now starts us in 1801, the beginning of the Jeffersonian era, to all the way up to about 1850, which is the beginning of the critical decade, where uh, we'll ultimately leave off in the Civil War at the end of the 1850s. That will be covered in the, uh, in the next installment. But nevertheless, when we hit 1801, Thomas Jefferson assumes presidency in March of 1801. It's right after the Peaceful Revolution, and that peaceful revolution was only because nobody brought guns to bear. John Adams had been defeated by Thomas Jefferson, took 36 ballots for him to actually become president of the United States, but nevertheless he does. And in 1801, as a parting shot, John Adams does what's known as Midnight Judges. He nominates a whole host of judges, and they're all Federalist judges. Now, history is kind of quiet as to why he does that. Does he want to sabotage the Jefferson president? Does he want to keep his influence in the United States government? It's really unsure about that. But nevertheless, a whole host of these judges are nominated, and John Adams' uh, Secretary of State, John Marshall, is given the task of delivering these appointments. As it turns out, John Marshall only delivers his own appointment and doesn't deliver the rest of them for approval by Congress. So John Marshall gets the job as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. In 1801, William Marbury decides he wants his job. He was promised he'd be Justice of the Peace by John Adams, and he sues. And he actually goes to the Supreme Court, and he sues James Madison. It's called Marbury versus Madison in 1803. He sues James Madison because Madison is now Secretary of State. So he's suing the position, not the person. He would have sued John Marshall, but John Marshall is now Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. So it's Marbury, private citizen, wants his job as Justice of the Peace against Secretary of State James Madison. And that will become the pivotal early decision in the Supreme Court because John Marshall is in a position now where he has to decide for himself about something he actually helped cause, which is the whole midnight judges situation. So in a lengthy decision, John Marshall turns around and says, wait a minute, wait a minute. The problem isn't John Adams nominating these judges. The problem isn't Thomas Jefferson not wanting James Madison to give these judgeships. The problem isn't that they weren't delivered. The problem is the law itself. The Judiciary Act of 1789 doesn't make a lot of sense that the president can't appoint this unlimited amount of judges without some further analysis. So he rules that the uh, Judiciary Act of 1789 is partially unconstitutional, the part that gives the president an unlimited amount of judgeships he can fill. And he also turns around and says the Supreme Court does not have original jurisdiction, meaning they only have appellate jurisdiction, and Madison went to the wrong court. So Madison's understandably upset about this. Excuse me, Marbury, I'm sorry, is understandably upset about this. 
But nevertheless, Marbury will end up not getting his job. Madison will not have to take it either because it's the law that's ultimately declared unconstitutional. So John Marshall finds a way to make this decision work. He doesn't have to rule against the Adams appointments and his friend who gave him the job. He doesn't have to rule against Thomas Jefferson and sabotage his presidency. And lo and behold, we've established what's called judicial review, and that becomes a precedent for every, for every decision as we go forward. At around the same time, so we're, going to, we're going to be engaged in our first foreign altercation, the Barbary Wars off the northern coast of Africa, in which Thomas Jefferson is going to commit our very limited navy to defending American shipping off the northern coast of Africa. Now, Thomas Jefferson is an agrarian. He believes in the agrarian republic. He believes that we will be a nation of farmers. And we know this because in 1785 he wrote the Land Ordinance, in 1787 he wrote the Northwest Ordinance, both plans for westward expansion. So, what happens? In 1803 he gets a deal of a lifetime. He wants to get access to the, point of New, to the uh, port of New Orleans. So, uh, he makes sure that uh, Napoleon is aware of this and a deal is, is offered to Napoleon. And the, the, the deal basically goes like this. We will buy the port of New Orleans and you get some money to help fight your endless wars. Well, Napoleon turns around. Instead, he says, I'll sell you the whole thing. I'll sell you the whole Louisiana territory for $15 million. And Thomas Jefferson, he's conflicted about this because he is a strict constructionist. And what that means is that he doesn't believe he has the power to do it because the Constitution doesn't say that he has the power to do this. So he searches and searches and searches. We know he wants to do it. And he eventually finds what he needs in Article 1, Section 8, Number 18, which is called the Necessary and Proper Cause of Section 1 of the Constitution. It basically says the, that Congress can do whatever is necessary and proper to fulfill its duties. So he's going to end up being able to authorize the purchase of Louisiana and we double the size of the United States for $15 million. It was really quite a deal. Well, very quickly we will have the Lewis and Clark expedition into Louisiana territory. And that's the first foreign expedition, if you like, and they're going to go all the way to the west coast of the United States. And that occurs starting out in 1804. Because Thomas Jefferson believes that we will be a nation of farmers, he doesn't want to get involved in international altercations, and because both the French and the British are attacking some of our ships on the Atlantic Ocean, he issues the Embargo Act in 1807, which basically turns around and says that we will not trade with other nations in the world, that we will be by ourselves, and what that really does is it destroys American industry in its infancy because we are importing and exporting and now we're not going to be able to. But he thinks it's going to work fine because we'll be farmers. Doesn't work fine. Destroys the American economy because we're not really agrarians. We're starting to have this idea of surplus, which means we're starting to produce more than we need. If we produce more than we need, we need to sell it. Well, also, fulfilling the constitutional promise in 1808, the international slave trade ends. So this is the end of importing slaves. It will still happen illegally, but it's the end of legal importation of slaves, which simply means that the domestic slave trade will take off and we will have slave breeding and slave trading increasing in the United States as a result of that. So, in 1808, Thomas Jefferson decides not to run for the presidency again, and he anoints his Secretary of State, James Madison. And James Madison wins. He's the second in what's called the Virginia dynasty. Uh, Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe being the Virginia dynasty. And there will be a democratic influence in government for 24 years. In either case, when James Madison becomes president, the first thing he does, he says, you know, we've got to reverse this embargo act thing. It's killing us. So he issues Macon's Bill Number 2. Macon's Bill Number 2 basically says we will trade with non-belligerent nations. And, of course, that means that trade will be opened up again and American industry will continue to grow 
At the same time, he doesn't want us to deal with the Indians in the Ohio Valley, so the Non-Intercourse Act is passed, and that basically says we will not trade with Indians. So we're not going to trade with Indians, but we'll trade with Europeans. This idea of surplus leads to what's called a market revolution, in which case we will centralize uh, distribution in the United States and sale of items, and little markets develop, hence the market revolution. And we develop a market economy in which price is based on demand and preference as well as supply. Well, now going west is a big deal. And strangely enough, as part of our westward incursions, we, when we head into the Ohio Valley, we're going to end up with something called the Battle of Tippecanoe, in which William Henry Harrison defeats uh, Native Americans on the Tippecanoe River in the Ohio Valley. And what they find is that the British have been supplying our enemies, Native Americans, with weapons. And that's, that's a, a ghastly thing. It's a ghastly thing. And Henry Clay leads a group of war hawks in calling for war. They're impressing our sailors on ships in the Atlantic Ocean. They're stopping us from heading west. We need to do something about this, Mr. Madison. We need to go to war. And Madison doesn't want to go to war. The British promise that they'll withdraw troops, but nevertheless, we will go to war because James Madison is threatened by losing the, in, that he might lose the 1812 election because of this big pushing war hawks from the southern states, southwestern specifically, Henry Clay being from Kentucky. So, we're going to launch into the War of 1812, but the War of 1812 is going to impact shipping with the British. So in 1814 in Hartford, Connecticut, there's a convention held by former Federalists and what will become the new Whigs in time, and they say, listen, this is killing shipping for the Northeast, so we're going to secede. And the idea of secession, we first heard it in Virginia and Kentucky in 1798, now we're going to hear it again in 1814 by the Northeastern states. They want to secede from the Union unless the war comes to an end. Once again, James Madison, being over a barrel, turns around and says, you know what? We need to bring this war to an end. We're not doing so well anyway. Um, you know, the capital was burned. Um, James Madison is heading an artillery battle. We'll, we'll get the Star Spangled Banner, Banner written by Francis Scott Key, in which he was a guest, not a prisoner of the British. Anyway, so the Treaty of Ghent will arise out of, you know, out of the ashes of the War of 1812, and it'll basically reassert the fact that the British need to leave North America and that America is a sovereign nation, and that'll be the Treaty of Ghent. Well, nobody tells anybody, and in January of 1815, we have the Battle of New Orleans. It was certainly an accidental battle, communication not being what it is today, and Andrew Jackson defeats the British fleet at New Orleans and he's defending New Orleans, but it makes him a national folk hero and he'll be a national folk hero from that point forward. Well, with the beginning of the market revolution, we're going to find that we need to expand our infrastructure. And Henry Clay hatches an idea that's come to, that will be called the American system. And the American system is based on the idea that we will develop our infrastructure. And developing our infrastructure to Henry Clay means building more canals and more roads. It means a series of protective tariffs. And to move the money, control the money, means a banking system. So the American system has three legs, like a three-legged stool. The banks, the tariffs, and internal improvements or infrastructure. And that's going to foster us heading west. It's also going to mean we're going to need more money to do this. So in 1816, we have a protective tariff passed that will try to protect the young American industries from foreign competition. Remember, a tariff protects American industries from foreign competition. In 1817, things got a little better with the British, and we're going to get the Rush-Bagot Treaty, which will cement the division between the United States and Canada going through the Great Lakes. So that's a, that's a very beneficial thing to us. We don't have to worry about our northern border. Well, during this time, we're heading west, 
There's a lot of land speculation going on. There's a lot of borrowing going on. And in 1819, because people borrowed so much money and banks have issued fake money, which they call specie, a panic sets in because the value of this new land and its westward expansion, the value has dropped and banks need their money back to repay their depositors. But the money doesn't really exist because it was fake money, it was this paper specie that didn't account to much. And that leads to a bank panic and banks start trying to throw people off their land and foreclose on these laws, on, the, on these, these loans. Well, the um, Monroe administration at this time is in power. They come in in 1817, the third of the Virginia dynasty. And a series of stay laws are issued. These stay laws basically prevent the banks from foreclosing on these farms and these homes they lent money for. Um, it's happened several times in American history very recently during the Obama administration. Well, with heading west, we're going to have Missouri. Missouri is in the middle of the nation. It does, it's not north, it's not south. And the people of Missouri want to become a state under the terms of the um, Northwest Ordinance of 1787 and the Land Ordinance of 1785. They want to be a slave state. The problem is if they become a slave state, you will tip the balance in Congress to the slave states, and the slave states will control certainly the House of Representatives and have strong influence in the Senate. So it's what to do. We can't do this. We can't have an imbalance like this. And very coincidentally, Maine, which is pushed together from other pieces of northeastern states and part of southern Canada, um, wants to enter as a free state. So Henry Clay puts together what will be called the Missouri Compromise. It really is a compromise of convenience, but it allows us to keep the status quo. And it establishes Missouri as the middle of the nation, with the southern border of Missouri being the furthest north slavery can extend, except for Missouri's northern border. And that will hold all the way up until 1850. This time period is also called the era of good feelings, because President Monroe has succeeded in bringing the parties together. There are other things going on. Obviously, there's a Missouri crisis, and there's the panic, and I have that's certainly true. But politically, the country is coming together. He takes former Federalists, and he brings them into his cabinet, and it's called the era of good feelings for that reason. And in 1820, he runs virtually unopposed for re-election. hasn't happened very often in American history. The only time was any better than that was when George Washington was elected back in 1788 at the, you know, after the Constitution was ratified. So, in 1823, fearing that the Europeans, particularly the British, might return to the Americas and try to colonize parts of Central and South America, the Monroe Doctrine is issued. Now, most people are confused by the Monroe Doctrine. The Monroe Doctrine is not a document. It's part of James Monroe's um, speech, his, you know, his... Uh, the State of the Union Address in 1823, and it's snippets here and there. It's a little piece here and there. But basically what it says is that the Americas are closed to future European colonization. Then it goes, you know, several pages, and then that the uh, Americas will not interfere in affairs of Europe, and it goes to several other pages, and basically tells the Europeans they shouldn't bother coming to the Americas because uh, they are closed to further colonization. Well, it basically is a, it's a strong statement by a pretty weak nation. But if you go looking for it, you won't find a document called the Monroe Doctrine. It simply doesn't exist. I, I used to sign it to my students to go find it, and they couldn't find it, and they'd come and they'd be all pissed off and everything, so they couldn't find it. And I said, well, that's the point. History has a way of changing things, and that's one of the things that was changed. Anyway, so that's the Monroe Doctrine in 1823. It becomes a basis for American foreign policy for a very long time. Well, Monroe Doctrine and most of James Monroe's speeches were written by Quincy Adams. And Quincy Adams is also credited, by the way, in 1819 for also giving us the Adams Onus Treaty in 1819. The Adams Onus Treaty 
is where we will acquire Florida from Spain for $10 million. So Quincy Adams has been his pretty good, a pretty good Secretary of State for sure, and he expects that he will be the next President of the United States. After all, James Madison had been Thomas Jefferson's Secretary of State and becomes President. Uh, James Monroe had been James Madison's Secretary of State becomes President. Quincy Adams believes that he will logically be the next president. So, and then we go to 1824. James Monroe is done with his presidency. He's not going to run for re-election. The president has been established of two terms. And his Secretary of State, Quincy Adams, wants to be president. Well, after a disputed election between primarily uh, Quincy Adams, Andrew Jackson, and Henry Clay, and there's a fourth guy, I still always forget who it is, doesn't matter in the example. But nevertheless, we end up in the House of Representatives because while Andrew Jackson has won the majority of the popular vote, he has not won the majority of the electoral vote. And this becomes the first election in which the um, popular vote is actually reported to the public. So now people know exactly how many people voted for which candidate in each state. And they know that Andrew Jackson was the clear winner, winner in terms of the popular vote. Doesn't matter because he didn't have enough electoral votes. We end up in the House of Representatives, and Henry Clay, Clay throws his support behind Andrew, behind Quincy Adams. And when he throws his support behind Quincy Adams, Quincy Adams actually wins the presidency in Congress, and Andrew Jackson is fit to be tied. And because of that, Andrew Jackson screams, there's a corrupt bargain here. And because he screams there's a corrupt bargain, it becomes known historically as a corrupt bargain. It is, it is alleged. Clearly, there was some kind of deal made. We don't know what the deal was, but nevertheless, Quincy Adams becomes president, and Henry Clay becomes his secretary of state. We know Henry Clay wanted to be president because he ran in the first place in the 1824 election. So it's thought, well, if Henry Clay becomes Quincy Adams' secretary of state, then he's next in line to be president, and that's what Andrew Jackson figures they bargained on. So Andrew Jackson screams blue bloody murder, and the next four years, the Jacksonians have a good time destroying Quincy Adams' presidency. And because of that, Quincy Adams is known to call it four miserable years, as do many historians. The only positive during his presidency is Erie Canal is built, and that's an example of the expanding American system. So now if we continue along, looking at the lower part of the timeline, you will see that one of the first things that we contend with is this idea of Jackson will become president, and we're going to get the tariff of 1828. Quincy Adams, like his dad, was not a gracious loser. And one of the last things Quincy Adams did before leaving the presidency was pass the tariff of 1828. That tariff, like most tariffs, was divisive in the United States. The South would suffer because the South produced very little of its own goods and Northern industrialists would prosper because that tariff was protecting Northern industry. Well, John C. Calhoun uh, had been Senator of South Carolina and had also, at this point in time, was Quincy Adams' Vice President. He pens a pamphlet basically protesting and exposing the tariff as being punitive and being divisive and being attacked of the North against the South. And he's going to expose and protest that tariff is called exposition and protest in his pamphlet. Well, he believes that when Andrew Jackson becomes president, that Jackson will support him, that will support Calhoun. Jackson becomes president, and instead of supporting Calhoun, 
does just the opposite. He takes a vendetta against Calhoun because he believes that Calhoun is trying to undermine his authority. And that's not something Jackson likes an awful lot. Jackson is very much a person who will govern by personal vendetta and loyalty. If you're loyal to him, he will do anything for you. If he feels that you're disloyal in any way, he's going to put you on his enemies list. And boy, will he have some enemies. And Calhoun will be one of them, and Clay will be another one, and Biddle will be another one, just to name three. They call the time period the age of Jackson. He's the only president to have an age named after himself. And he's got two, because he's also the age of the common man. Well, he was entirely common. He was a rich slave owner. But nevertheless, people looked at him as being the common man. And because of that, there was a certain romance to the guy. And they looked past his foibles and his rage and his temperamental attitude. So nevertheless, the tariff will start out the debate of the Jackson years. Also what's going to happen is in 1830, Senator Hayne from John C. Calhoun's state of South Carolina will debate Daniel Webster from Massachusetts over the whole idea of the tariff. And obviously Hayne is going to say the tariff is punitive and Webster is going to say it's necessary to protect American industry and you're going to have a larger element of sectionalism development. Also, not related at all, you're going to have Jackson passing the Indian Removal Act in 1830. That act will ultimately lead to the Trail of Tears seven years later because it will be debated in court for a while and it will be a while before it actually goes into effect. But nevertheless, Jackson is going to pass the Indian Removal Act which is going to take primarily Cherokee Indians but there are other groups as well from the hills of Georgia and Tennessee and moving to the Oklahoma Territory in time. In 1831, we'll have our, our first large-scale slave rebellion. That'll be Nat Turner in Virginia. And the Nat Turner Rebellion is going to wake people up because Nat Turner was a good slave. He was a well-spoken, literate slave who treated his master well, his master treated him well. But he goes on a rampage, and he kills uh, you know, a lot of southern slave owners in Virginia. And he hides out in the woods, and they ultimately catch him. And he's ultimately executed for this. But a whole series of Nat Turner laws will be passed clamping down on slavery in the United States. Slaves won't be allowed to read anymore. They won't be allowed to travel in groups anymore there. They will be very limited. It's a big debate in Virginia. Virginia is the first state to openly debate the emancipation of slavery in this time period. Anyway, we'll see that split more when we get to the Civil War, we get Virginia and West Virginia. In 1832, Jackson has already come across his... Uh, his series of enemies. He's already uh, vetoed the Maysville Road of Henry Clay in Kentucky. And uh, he's not thrilled with the banks either. He thinks the banks are elitist. And he thinks the banks are for the wealthy and they're ignoring the good of the nation. So Henry Clay and Nicholas Biddle come up with a scheme. And their scheme is they're going to approach Andrew Jackson in 1832, which is an election year. And they're going to bring the bank charter to him five years early. It's not due to expire until 1832. But they're going to bring it to him it's 1837, I'm sorry. But they're going to bring it to him in 1832. And in 1832, they're going to defy him. They're going to dare him to veto the bank, to veto the charter of the bank. They're not thinking he ever will. But he does. He actually does it on the 4th of July and simply returns it to Congress and says, I object to this and we are not going to recharter the bank in the United States. Of course, the bank will remain open for another five years, so the full effects of closing the bank won't be felt immediately. During the same time, we have the two cases to do with Indian removal, Cherokee versus Georgia and Worcester versus Georgia. 
And both cases have to do with can the United States government actually take Indians off of land that they had dedicated to those Indians. And in both cases, John Marshall, the John Marshall of Midnight Judges, John Marshall, is going to turn around and say that this is sovereign land and that Georgia, nor, neither Georgia nor the United States government has the power to do this. And of course, Andrew Jackson basically says to John Marshall, well, you made your decision, now let's see if you can actually enforce it. Of course, John Marshall can't. And it's not an unpopular decision, because going west and displacing Indians was the theme of the day. So Jackson was not looked upon as being a villain at all. As a matter of fact, John Marshall looked at as being more of a villain by ruling against him. During this same time period, because Jackson's got all his balls in the air at the same time, the nullification crisis is heating up. And the whole idea is, shall we nullify, shall South Carolina nullify the tariff? Well, another tariff is instituted in 1832, to back up the, early, the earlier 1828 tariff, this tariff becomes the Tariff of Abominations, as coined by John C. Calhoun, who has left the Jackson administration and is now back as Senator of South Carolina. And John C. Calhoun threatens not to pay this tariff. We're not going to pay the tariff. It's unfair. States' rights, Tenth Amendment, you can't do this to us. So Jackson says, oh yeah? And Jackson gets... He uses popularity, and he gets the force bill through Congress. And the force bill basically gives him the authority to send the United States Army into South Carolina and collect that tax money. So he gives General Winfield Scott authority to assemble an army to go into South Carolina. He doesn't. It doesn't happen. They assemble on the border between North and South Carolina. But John C. Calhoun realizes that Jackson's a little unhinged at the very best, and maybe crazy beyond that. So... He runs and hides because he thinks that Jackson is actually going to have him hanged. And that doesn't happen, and South Carolina backs down, and they indeed will end up paying that tariff money. And Jackson has really, really increased the size and scope of the power of the presidency and of the executive branch of the United States. And at the same time, he's defunding the banks. He's taking money out of the federal banks and putting them in state banks. Well, if you're going to do that, if you're going to take the money out of the federal banks and put it into state banks, you're going to ultimately defund the federal banks, which is certainly going to happen. So then we move ahead, and he's not going to run for re-election in 1836, and old Martin Van Buren will become president of the United States. In a time when reform movements are really heating up, there's a whole series of Jacksonian reforms that have to do with women's rights and temperance and utopian societies and a second great awakening and abolition. Everybody that thinks there's a cause jumps on the bandwagon. And we have evangelism and we have preachers in the streets. And it's a wild time because he empowers so many people with his idea of the common man. So then we're going to move along and after the Trail of Tears in 1837, Martin Van Buren will be a pretty unpopular president. And Jackson does to Van Buren what Reagan did to George H. Bush. He leaves him a mess. The bank panic occurs in 1837. The uh, federal bank system collapses for the most part, and there's not enough money to go around to cover debts. Um, 1837, we also have the Trail of Tears, the forced relocation of the Cherokee Indians, mostly occurring while Van Buren is president, although certainly set up while Jackson was president. So we're heading west. And Henry West means going more and more into the Ohio Valley. And in 1840, we're going to have Tippecanoe and Tyler II, which means William Henry Harrison runs for president with John Tyler. Well, William Henry Harrison, he might have been a hero 
of the Battle of Tippecanoe and a hero during the War of 1812. But he's not going to be a hero now. After giving a very bellicose inauguration speech, he's going to die of pneumonia shortly thereafter, about five weeks later. And John Tyler becomes president. Now, the people were tired of Jacksonian Democrats, and they thought that John Tyler would be a Whig as William Henry Harrison had been a Whig. This is the party that was started as a result, as a result of the bank conflict. Didn't occur that way. John Tyler was really very much of a Jacksonian, and that surprised everybody. So the age of Jackson continues unto John Tyler as a result of the death of William Henry Harrison in 1841. I have Dorothea Dix up here just as a place marker to remind us of all the different reform movements, and of course she's best known for the asylum movement. Also during this time, Americans have been going into Texas. Americans are going to Texas. Texas has fought its war for independence. We've had the Alamo occur. And now in 1845, in 1845, Texas will be annexed. It'll be annexed by James K. Polk. Because now we'll have James K. Polk, 1845 to 1849. Texas becomes part of the United States and there's a dispute about where the boundary is. The boundary between Texas and Mexico is the boundary the Nueces River, which is a little northern, a little northern, than, a little further north, I'm sorry, than it is now, or is it the Rio Grande River, which is the present border? Well, of course, Mexico claimed it was the Nueces River. We claimed it was the Rio Grande River, and that fertile land in between was the dispute zone. And so begins the Mexican-American War over that land. It was a trumped-up war by James Polk. He kind of instigated the war by sending troops into the disputed land. But nevertheless, we will have the Mexican War. David Wilmot, a uh, politician from Massachusetts, comes up with called the Wilmot Proviso. And the Wilmot Proviso pretty much says that all land acquired in the Mexican War should be forever free. Shouldn't be slave, it should be forever free. That's not going to go over very well because the people in Texas want to head out and they want to take that land. His point was it was arid land, it was a lot of unusable land, and it didn't make a lot of sense for slavery to end up in that land. Nevertheless, it will be a dispute. So, two years into the war, the American forces superior to the Mexican forces, and we have a surrender, and we have an ultimate peace treaty called the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Guadalupe Hidalgo, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, but I'm from New York. Anyway, will turn around and give us the entire southwest part of the United States and Canada for some, you know, some straightening of borders between the United States and Mexico and $10 million. Shortly after Guadalupe Hidalgo, in the fall of 1848, gold will be found in California, outside of Sutter's Mill, in, San, in uh, Sacramento, outside of Sacramento. And it's like the Mexicans can't catch a break here. They lost the war and then they lost the gold, the largest known store of gold in the world at the time. Also during 1848, in Seneca Falls, New York, we'll have Lucretia Mott and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and they'll be getting together the Women's Rights Convention at Seneca. And at Seneca, there's a big debate as to what should they be asking for for women's rights. And Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott disagree on whether they should ask for suffrage or not. Ultimately, they agree that that is a final goal, but the biggest goal at Seneca was just a greater validation of women's role in society and that women should gain greater rights. Of course, it would be much longer before we're actually going to get uh, suffrage. They also align themselves with the abolition movement because both groups of people were very much being subjugated at the time. So the gold rush will continue into 1849, and... This huge rush of people, they'll become known as the 49ers in California, and the country almost tilts because so many people go there. And slaves don't go there. This is people going as fast as they can to get gold. And the population explodes in California in 1849, and of course, what does that mean? That means they want to be a state. 
So if California wants to become a state, now what do you do? Is it a free state? Is it a slave state? James K. Polk does not run in 1848. So in 1849, we will get Zachary Taylor as president of the United States. And the debate is on. Free or slave for California is even a brief debate about dividing California, north and south. Have a north and south California like they have a north and south Carolina. Um, it was quickly squelched because the north would get all of the gold and the south would get nothing. So that wasn't going to work. It was using the Missouri Compromise line then could not happen. So um, Henry Clay comes up with another idea. He calls it the Compromise of 1815. It's an omnibus bill, meaning there's many stages to it. Zachary Taylor does not want to hear about a compromise. He thinks that California should be a uh, free state. That's it. There should be no compromise. But he dies. He dies. It's a, a warm summer day, July 4th, 1850. He's at the groundbreaking for the Washington Monument. And he eats cherries and milk, warm milk and cherries on a hot summer day in Washington, D.C. He basically dies of gastroenteritis. His, uh, you know, his uh, friends think he was poisoned because the dispute over the Compromise of 1850, his body was ultimately exhumed and they found it was probably gastroenteritis. It wasn't exhumed until the late 1900s, I think it was 1998. Don't quote me on that, it could be wrong on that. Nevertheless, he dies and Millard Fillmore becomes president of the United States. And Millard Fillmore signs the Compromise of 1850, where Zachary Taylor refused to. And the Compromise of 1850 was more divisive than anyone could have thought of. It turned around and said the Mexican session will have something called popular sovereignty. The people in the varying states of the Mexican session could decide for themselves whether they wanted to be free or slave. California would enter as a free state, and we would get a fugitive slave law. A fugitive slave law, a tough fugitive slave law, basically said that any slave who ran away any, to any part of the United States, didn't matter how far north, it could be northern Maine, could be returned to slavery. What that would mean is the South would now start to hire bounty hunters and go north to capture runaway slaves. Basically, this omnibus bill, bill has an omnibus, an omnibus bill has multiple parts. This omnibus bill with the Fugitive Slave Act will divide the United States because now the fact that Southerners could come north and capture runaway slaves basically means slavery has been extended throughout the entire United States. So, this time period that we've just gone over begins all the way back with midnight judges at the beginning of the Jeffersonian period and then goes through the agrarian period, through the War of 1812, and the corrupt bargain. And then it continues with the whole tariff debate and the age of Jackson, which will continue for quite a while. He certainly wasn't the common man. We'll have the bank war, we'll have nullification, we'll have the Maysville Road Beetle, we'll have the Trail of Tears, and then we'll have the Jacksonian reforms. Also, a little later in the time period, the idea of manifest destiny coined in 1845 by John L. O'Sullivan in reaction to Texas being annexed. It's now our God given right to go west which will then allow us to fight with Mexico over the border between Texas and Mexico. And that will lead to the treaty at the end of the war in which we get the entire Mexican session open to popular sovereignty as a result of the gold rush of 1849 and a huge influx of people into California. And finally, we will end up with the Compromise of 1850, which will set up what we call the decade of crisis. So this concludes the second of our series, and the third one will pick up in 1851 with the beginning of the decade of crisis and the writing of Uncle Tom's Cabinet.